Now, one of the things that helped me and the family no end during lockdown was having access to the entire Pixar back catalogue via Disney+. Plus. My two boys and I watched virtually all of the movies and shorts again for the umpteenth time, uh, as well as The Mandalorian. So it was a real joy for me to speak to the animator, writer and director, Dan Scanlon. Now, Dan joined Pixar in 2001 and worked on Cars and Toy Story 3 as a story artist before directing Monsters University. His latest work was the deeply personal suburban fantasy Onward. Based on his own experience of losing his father, Onward tells the story of two elf brothers who go in search of an artefact that will temporarily bring their deceased dad back to life. It's both visually and emotionally beautiful. And if you haven't seen it yet, well, you should watch it now. The film is scored by Michael and Jeff Dana, and it's with their cue quests of yore that we begin. thank you for doing this um for a second time because well i screwed up with the video it didn't it didn't happen the last time and i'm very grateful that you've uh, given me another chunk of your time to talk about your wonderful work so thank you sir thank you very much i had so much fun talking to you last time this is a joy to get to talk again and i agree with you let's do it let's do it monthly yeah love it it's also given me chat do you know how many times we've watched your film since we last chatted uh, no three more times Goodness, it wasn't that long ago. It's so great. Oh, thank you. It's so good. And, you know, I think Onwards tells this brilliant story. And it's, and I think as well, I think it's a thing with all, you know, we've grown up watching these amazing films that, that, that Pixar unveiled to us in the world. And we connect with them in such a personal way. And that's because there is so much dedication that goes into you know, the research, like I remember um, chatting to the team behind Moana and the, 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 the research and the work that went into that film was incredible. And I couldn't believe how much goes into it, even before a sketch is drawn. It's just phenomenal. And with this particular story in Onward, it was very personal to you. And I guess I wanted to start by asking if there was any apprehension for you in terms of being so involved personally in the, in the story, really, and, and not wanting that to really be out there. Yeah, I mean, it is based on my own personal story of losing my father when I was young and my brother and I's experience and, and uh, uh, being raised by our mom. Uh, I didn't have a lot of um, hesitation at first because Pixar is a place that really encourages directors to pull from their lives. <clears throat> they really... In, inspire you and encourage you to be vulnerable. So I felt very comfortable. It really wasn't until the movie was about to come out that I realized, oh, this is hard, you know. The rest of the world is not always this kind. Yeah. And realizing that if my family saw this and didn't like it or felt that they'd been misrepresented, I mean, it's not my autobiography, but it is loosely inspired. And um, luckily that wasn't the case. My family was really moved by the film and it's really changed our relationship even for the better, uh, as if it wasn't already really good, it's really opened up a dialogue. 
And then the greatest thing was seeing messages from people on social media who said, wow, that was my story up there, or that reminded me of my brother or my sister or, or a teacher or a loved one. That's awesome. I mean, that's why we put six years into these films is so that they can hopefully connect to people. I remember um, having the privilege of spending a morning with, with Corey, your producer, uh, in London when she came across to kind of tease the film to us. And she played this bit of audio that was so emotional to hear in the room. You know, we kind of like, we're all like, there's normally a tear shed when you watch a Pixar film. But even before we'd seen a frame of this film, we were all in bits in this room because of how personal this story was and how, you know, this, this, this tape of your dad's voice, which, do you mind telling me the story about this tape? Because this was extraordinary. My uh, dad, you know, uh, passed away when I was a year old, so I don't remember him at all. And we didn't have uh, any audio of his voice because back when I was a kid, home movies didn't have audio. So we'd seen his face and we'd seen images of him moving, but we never heard him speak and figured we never would. And then when we were teenagers, we got a audio tape from a relative and they said they think, uh, they thought our dad's voice was on the tape, but they hadn't listened to it. So my mom and brother and I huddled around in our room, just like in the movie when they get the staff and we, um, we listened to the tape and as the tape got closer to the end, we still hadn't heard our father speak. He was always out of the room. And then finally he spoke and he said, um, uh, hello. And then they asked him to say one other thing. And he said, goodbye. And that was it, just hello and goodbye. <laughs> but it was better than nothing. And to my brother and I, it was very magical. Yeah. When you were um, thinking about the, 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 the sort of route the, the, and the, the story and the narrative that it would follow and also the world that it's set in, was that an easy thing to kind of work through and navigate? Because I think that the fact that you do set these characters in a kind of magical kind of fantasy land, it's kind of hard to explain what it gives it. We wanted a world where the brothers could bring their father back to life. And that seemed like a world that had to have some sort of magic. And that's how we got to the idea of a fantasy world. And I think there's just something romanticized about that this world where magic used to exist you know you're, you're certainly thinking about this idea that anything could be possible and so that's where that came from but it also added humor i mean it, it added this level of humor to have a modern fantasy world which is something we hadn't seen much of yeah and uh it is a pixar film after all and a comedy uh the other thing i liked about it was these i knew that these brothers were going to have to go on a on an adventure and on a journey to find their father so quest movie uh, felt right. And then to do a modern take on a quest was <laughs> really fun and gave it that, uh, that, that excitement. And I love the fact that, you know, the, the older brother uh, played by Chris Pratt is this, uh, the idea of his obsession with these kind of, you know, with this, this world, you know, the kind of, he's the one that knows that world and he's the one that's obsessed with it. It's, it's such a clever kind of take and, and sort of, twist on on that whole kind of quest idea that they're sent on it's very very clever yeah i mean it's something that we try to find things that you could only do in the modern quest movie you know so so that for example of oh well they would have these role-playing games but they'd be real they'd be based on reality it'd be like people doing civil war reenactments you know <laughs> yeah. all the stuff that really happened and how fun to have their map and their knowledge come from this game and then uh, Guinevere the Van was another example of that. We thought, well, a lot of Quest <laughs> movies are either on foot or on a horse. And for a while, we did have the brothers on foot. And we thought, what are we doing? This is a, we're missing an opportunity to have this 
car, this van in this, on this quest and treat it like a horse and treat it like a character. And then it, it ended up being very important in the movie because Barley had to, uh, we had to show that he sacrifices for his brother and it had to be something that he truly loved. So we really treated her like a character. Was it easy when you were um, thinking about how the, the film would sound in terms of music? And at what point did you start thinking about that? I think it was, um, I mean, we think about music when we're in the early stages and we're, we're crafting real story reels, which are like storyboarded rough versions of the movie. And we take a lot of uh, music from other movies and things to get the feel of it. But we did know that we wanted something that had this classic quest fantasy film quality, but something that could also be really small since it is the story of this young boy coming of age. So emotional, but also big and adventurous. And that led to the Dana brothers because <clears throat> their work on Good Dinosaur and, and everything they've done, uh, the one thing that I really love about their work is how emotional it is and how they can make a big adventure uh, theme. And so they were perfect. And it just so happened that they were brothers, which didn't hurt either, uh, which wasn't <laughs> intentional. But yeah. they, said, they said they kind of had to work out some of their stuff too while working on this movie. that kind of weird thing of like even in you know they've done some amazing films be like from the life of pi to and a real diversity they're not the type of composers who sit in a box of being a you know they do this type of thing you know it's, but i think little miss sunshine for me is one of their it's one of my favorite scores of theirs
and we've been lucky enough to have the directors on the show. We talked quite a lot in depth about that score and stuff. And I think, you know, even almost like the quest likeness of that film, I think as well, is lovely. The road trip and the family being a big theme of that as well. And so I, I think he gets that, they get that, sorry, brilliantly in in the way that they um, they score and the emotion they kind of pull out from their orchestration, their, their kind of melodies that they come up with. Yeah, it's funny you mention that because that really drew me to them when I listened to the the variety, what you mentioned to the diversity of they've made very different films <clears throat> with very different styles. But the heart really pulls through in every single one of them. And, and I thought right away, OK, these people are going to put love and emotion into anything they do. So, yeah. There's a real mix of how music is used within Pixar films, whether, you know, it's like uh, like the Cars films, there's quite a lot of needle drops and stuff in there as well. But when you're deciding on whether you're going to go down that route or whether you're going to stick purely to score or whether you might just have the odd, it, what are the conversations around making those making that kind of decision on it? You know, I early on I worked a lot with... Um, folks in editorial <clears throat> who, you know, know more about music than I do. I would say that soundtracks and music and how music relates to film is one of the things I know the least about and, and really want to learn more about. So I had a lot of help from my editor and music editors helping me figure that out. But uh, again, I just wanted something that felt small at first, like almost like, um, you know, something very small and intimate that would could build into these big over-the-top fantasy uh, uh, ideas. And um, I think that's really where we, where we come from is usually, again, emotion and storytelling. So sometimes it's okay if you don't know a lot about yeah. the thing you're trying to direct. You know, I worked with Randy Newman on Monsters University, and uh, he's an incredibly talented guy. And I told him, look, I don't know much about music. 
I don't know much about soundtracks. I don't really fully understand how to articulate what I want all the time. All I know how to do is speak about the emotion of the scene. And he said, good. Because the last thing he wanted was me trying to tell him, turn up the violin here or whatever. (laughs) I mean, no one wants that. That's why you surround yourself with great collaborators, you know, in terms of the people who are at the top of their game, you know, be that your editors or your your composers or your, you know, your animators as well. And, they, and for you as well, you know, you've come up, how long have you, you been at Pixar and you've worked across on a huge amount of films? I've been here a huge amount of years and worked on very few films. I've been here 18 years, but it takes six years to make a film. So an 18 year career is basically like four films. I I was a storyboard artist on Cars, the first Cars, uh, Toy Story 3, and then directed Monsters U and then onwards. So my uh, IMDb page lists a lot of other things that really are just because I have an executive role. I didn't do anything to help anyone. (laughs) Still part of the team, Dan. Still part of the team. Because I I wanted to ask you about the little um, Mater shorts as well. Did you not do one of those? I did do one of those. and and Yeah. After Cars, I got an opportunity to co-direct, you know, my first directing job on Mater and the Ghost Light, which was a really cool experience. I got to work with uh, the late Joe Ranft on that for a while. And he was an, a, totally a mentor of mine. I mean, I uh, learned so much from him. So that was a great experience and, uh, and just fun to do something short and fun to learn about how the whole process works. I'm still learning how the process works. Yeah, I think that's the way you should it's healthy to approach life is to kind of be willing to learn as you're going along. It's kind of, you know, you can learn so much from so many people on the journey sort of thing. Oh yeah. And you're always learning, you know, and you're always, uh, yeah, figuring things out. I've got two boys, as I see, who are seven and uh, just turned 12 this week. And I mean, we love the film and I have to say thanks for the film. Oh, I have to say hi, Carol's here. Carol, she's in the background. She's the most amazing looking thing ever. I mean, she looks like a cross between Edna from The Incredibles. Uh, she should have her own film. She's amazing. Well, she Archie the Scare Pig is kind of based on Carol, and Blazy's oh. a little based on Carol. But I didn't mean to interrupt. I keep telling him to make a film based on our dog. Hi. Sorry, we hijacked this whole thing. He has to. She's the most gorgeous thing. Oh, I'm so sorry. No, my God, please don't apologize. No, please don't apologize. It's amazing. Um, I was saying that having two boys, seven and uh, just on 12, Rudy's birthday this week, is that, you know, I, I loved watching Pixar films and it's so wonderful to them, them love them as much as I do sort of thing. And we go back again and again. And those, those short Mater films as well, we watched like religiously, like again and again and again, you know, from Lan I'm crying. Or it was like, it was just, it was, they were such great little things. And even, you know, we've got Disney Plus and we work our way through those shorts. And that's the brilliant thing I think as well, in terms of this wonderful kind of training ground that Pixar seems to be in support ground of where it really nurtures people. It really kind of encourages them, you know, and 
you know, whether it be working in the shorts or working up through the, the kind of feature length things as well. I love the shorts and I think they have that classic Warner Brothers style of just fun animation. But there's also uh, one thing that's so exciting that ha happening now at Pixar is the Spark shorts, which are really an opportunity for uh, first time directors to do something a little more personal. Uh, you know, most of them deal with more interesting sort of new ideas, new voices, and yeah. it's been really cool to see what uh, more directors will do. Now to have Disney Plus is this venue for more material, and um, I think it's also going to inspire uh, a broader variety of folks to see themselves in these stories and hopefully start making their own stories. So it's a really exciting time. Yeah, we've watched Pearl about 60 times and considering I've got two boys, they really levitate towards that and they go, can we watch it again and again? I think it's brilliant. There's, And it's amazing how there's different people can latch on to slightly different things sort of thing. But Pearl, we've watched a lot over the last few weeks. And what a great film for young boys to be seeing. Absolutely great. And and Pinar as well, Top Rack, who did the um, the the score for that as well, did a, a, a great job. She was so excited, the fact that she was getting to to score a, a you know, she's like, oh, Pixar. You know, she's like, I'm one letter away from being called it. It's like, <laughs> so excited about it. Do you mind talking a little bit about Randy? You know, you talked about the fact that, you know, you kind of said to him that, that you know, um. And he's like, great. I don't know. I don't want people to tell me what to do and stuff. But, but what are the what were the conversations that you you had? You know, working on Monsters University and and you know when there, when there's also a pretense there of a previous film and what that sounded like and then how you put your own stamp on it, but but also adding your own creative input to it as well. Obviously, you know, one thing that was helpful early on, uh, Corey Ray, my filmmaking partner and producer of, of both Onward and Monsters U. I think she was a really pro big proponent on Monsters U of not using uh, any of the score from the first movie. You know, when you're doing a sequel, it's such a cheat to just plug in that beloved theme in a moment and you're like, oh, this, I remember the first film, I'm, I'm so happy. And Monsters U was really about something very different than Monsters mm -hmm. Inc. And they were, they were, you know, younger in college, thinking about their lives and who they were going to be. They weren't older characters who were having this sort of surrogate father figure moment with this young child. It was just very different. And um, uh, I think she was absolutely right. It made, uh, it forced us to create our own language, living within the body of Monsters, Inc., but to make it its own movie. We were going to open the movie. There's this, this, this um, animated sequence of Mike getting uh, uh, into the school and it's the titles and it's reminiscent of the animated sequence from the first movie. And we were just going to do a college March version of the Monsters Inc. theme. <laughs> uh, but we didn't in the end because it, again, it had nothing to do with that version mm. of the story. And so it just was a really good experience in making a prequel or a sequel to let it be its own film. Randy did record 
the Monsters Inc. theme song for the very last song of the end credits of Monsters U to kind of get you ready to go see the next movie. But even that we ended up not doing. And I, I think it was a good lesson. I love the fact that, um, who did, I can't remember who it was that told me about it because I didn't even realise this because it's the the opening bars, I'm literally self-combusting anyway, is with Star Wars, is that with every Star Wars film, that kind of opening, you know, did it, and then when it goes into the theme is is re-recorded and is slightly re-scored and written to absorb the themes of the film. So it's kind of everyone is slightly different, whereas very subtly, but yeah. I was like, no way, oh my God. <laughs> I was just listening to a bunch of John Williams music last night and just, I know this is the most obvious statement in the world, but I was thinking, boy, did he score our childhood. I mean, boy, has anyone done anything like, I mean, it's just crazy, uh, uh, the films he was a part of. Do you know who I think's kind of coming close to not kind of mimicking him, but but having a uh, an equally brilliant and exciting career as Michael Giacchino. Absolutely. I think, I mean, the work he did on, I mean, everything from Coco to Inside Out, Incredibles, just extraordinary. And those are just the Pixar films. I mean, he, he's exactly. the busiest man in show business. I mean, he's working on everything. <laughs> yeah. It was funny. I interviewed um, Taika, who I was such a big fan of, and... Um, he said when he was speaking to Michael about um, scoring Jojo Rabbit, he was like, basically, can I have Inside Out, <laughs> but set in Nazi Germany? <laughs> it's <just> like, <laughs> it's, because that, I mean, that, that Inside Out score is just like, oh, wow. on Brave at all? No, I think that's one where because I'm an executive member of yeah. the team, the name goes in the credits and therefore on IMDb. <laughs> yeah. So I get to take credit for all these great movies that I had nothing to do with. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I just, because I spoke to Patrick Doyle last week and he was awesome. What a man. He was great. What energy he has for and passion that he has for, for what he does. You know, it's so... Again, everyone at Pixar works for five to six years on these films and contributes so much. And then uh, the folks who score the films come in for the last year or so, and they make the second largest contribution to the film. I mean, I mean, they cover and touch the entire film and they affect it, the emotions of it so much, so quickly. <clears throat> and I'm always amazed by what's riding on their shoulders, but I'm also just amazed by how quickly they do it and how thoroughly they understand it. And a big part of my job is to just help them understand what we were going for, but mm. it is uh, an amazing feat. And I mean, they don't do it entirely alone, but it's a small team that helps them come up with those themes and, and that work. And and again, it's an amazing thing to watch. I mean, with Onward and MU going to the sessions and watching those musicians perform is, absolutely magical it makes no sense to me how they're able to do it it's <laughs> unbelievable and it's so old-fashioned i mean they're just there with these 
wood and brass instruments and hit and record and playing in the big room. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah. That's, I, I've been, I mean, I've only been a couple of times to be able to watch a couple of things be recorded. At, um, I've been at Abbey Road and then Air Studios in London to watch a couple of things. And it's, I'm like a child. It's just so, every hair on my body is just kind of like almost dancing along to the, to the tunes. It's extraordinary. When it came to, we'll go back to Onward if it's all right for a second, because the, the casting of it is brilliant. It's so spot on. And I imagine that well, tell me how much kind of um, you encouraged um, Chris and Tom to kind of, you know, bring an energy and a, and a, and a chemistry almost, I guess, to, to these characters that they played. Because that's incredibly important in terms of the relationship uh, that these brothers have and then how that also kind of, you know, goes on its own journey throughout the film as well. Tom was hired first because it was important to get an Ian who was... Uh, who we enjoyed watching being awkward, who we enjoyed watching being sort of uh, fumbly and shy. And Tom does that really, really well, even though he himself is a very confident young man. He yeah. plays that role well. And then he has great sincerity, which is important to the role too. He's a phenomenal actor and you really, um, you really commiserate with him. And then the other thing that Tom really added is in writing the character, I think that we made Ian a little more sardonic and, and um, sarcastic at times. and. And, you know, a lot of times we, the people at Pixar, will record the voices ourselves first. Like I played Ian first and I probably played it like a 44-year-old man <laughs> and uh, who was a little, you know, more of a wisecracking kind of whatever person. And then when Tom did the lines, he did them very sincerely and very um, vulnerable. And we rewrote a lot of it for that. And he was right to do that. It wasn't right for the character. And then Chris is so born to be that character. He's so boisterous and lovable. and He's so funny when he's being kind of a troublemaker or misunderstanding something. And Chris did a lot more improvising and even just putting things in his own words and, and uh, goofing around on this on the in the stage. And um, I think the other thing that Chris added to the character was he made sure that he wasn't just a fool. Like I might yeah. write a line where Barley's pants fall off and he falls down the stairs and ends up with a bucket on his head. And Chris would say like, "Well, he's not." A moron, like he's he should always be doing something for reasons that make sense to him. Yeah, and he was a real uh, guardian of him, while still letting him be fun and goofy. Uh, so that's the kind of stuff that it's great to have actors like that to to bring that reality. Yeah, because they they're invested in the character. You know what I mean? In terms of they want to they want to bring it they want to help bring it to life. That's that's amazing. Did they do any work together? Because I know it's a real kind of unique situation when you're actually able to get people in the room together to work on the voice 
It's hard because their schedules are so crazy, but we did, they wanted to, and we wanted them to, because they're friends. Uh, we did one, one session together and it was a lot of fun. It was early on. It helped me to hear their voices together and it helped them to play off each other. Yeah. And then after that, we had to go back to doing it separately, but at least we had that one day. Yeah. They're too busy being Spider-Man and, and uh, yeah, Star-Lord. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. We just watched, what did we rewatch the other night again? End game, that kind of end scene with with um, Thor and Skylord, where it's kind of it's just like you say about kind of you know how Chris plays a character in a situation where it's so good. That scene is so good, and I talked to him about that and said like, boy, one of the things those Marvel movies do so well is they have a million characters in those movies, but they give everyone something to do. And as we go into our third and fourth Toy Story, we were struggling with how to do that while we were working on it, and those movies are great. I mean, for me, they're a great um, example of how to do that well. And I, I think that, I think, you know, Toy Story 4 managed to pull that off as well. But it's hard work when you have all those beloved characters and you want everyone to get their, their moment. Toy Story is one of those things where it's, t- you know, it's, it's the first film is, is, is quite an old film now. And for those characters to travel over that period of time and still, I mean, emotionally connect in the way that they do, and you can still watch them now and it feel like the first time you've watched it and you still connect it to that way. It's, what, I mean, what was it like to work on, on the third one? <clears throat> it was so cool. And, and that is why I wanted to work on the third one. I felt like I love those movies and they really brought me to Pixar and just the love of them. And I thought, boy, if they're making another one, I want to be a part of it. And it was great because a lot of people on Toy Story 3 worked on the original. So I learned a lot from them. And then there were so many of us that were new to it. And that was fun to be the fresh blood. Yeah, it's great to have gotten to be a part of one of those films. Were you were you in a situation where you could be, you know, hear sort of Tom do a session as as Woody at all? Yeah, I got to go with Lee Anchorage and um, Lee asked me to just read opposite the actors so that Lee could focus on the performances. So I have this weird, um, <laughs> this weird role in history of I got to be the one person who saw all of Toy Story 3 uh, staring into the eyes of Tom Hanks and, and Tim Allen. Every single, almost every single character in the movie, I played the opposite character in the room, looking them in the eyes and, you know. Oh my God, that's amazing. Flirting with Tim Allen as Jesse and <laughs> saying, <laughs> you, know, you know, talking to Woody as if I was Buzz and saying so long partner and all these things. It was just amazing. It was so cool. And, um, you know, as you can imagine, Tom Hanks is, an American hero for a reason. He's an incredibly charming person in real life. And it was awesome. And awesome to watch Lee direct. I learned so much about how to direct actors in that, in that experience. Yeah, I think Lee's amazing. A Coco was just extraordinary. What a beautiful, beautiful film. Dan, thank you so much. So same time, same place next month, yeah? I'll be here. So if these films, just quickly before we go, if these films take six years, we've got Onward. Um, I'm assuming are you year one into a new film then? Slowly dipping our toes back into development, thinking about life, thinking about all the questions and fears and yeah. things that make up these movies. So all very exciting. Well, um, listen, thank you so much for, I mean, for, as a mum of two boys, this film was incredible in terms of how it made them uh, think about their relationship as brothers and how they are with each other. Um, and the fact they want to go back and live it again and again, I think is a beautiful and, and wonderful thing. So thank you so much for the film. 
And so great to chat to you again. Take care, be safe, and I'll see you soon. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you so much. and Jeff Dana's score to Onward that's a little magic rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Pixar's Dan Scanlon my huge thanks to Dan for taking the time to talk to me for a second time after our first conversation was lost to the hard drive Onward is available to watch on Disney Plus right now as are all the Pixar films and shorts not to mention the Marvel movies and plenty more besides It's an incredibly moving movie and I highly recommend it. Head to edithbowman.com to catch up with all of our previous episodes, including my chats with Lee Unquich and Michael Giacchino. My website is also the place to subscribe to this podcast, though your preferred provider works just as well. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK, whilst you can also watch my regular show on film, TV and music I put together on our YouTube channel. In fact, if you go back a couple of weeks, you can watch a little clip of Dan talking about Onwards. This week's show features Shannon Murphy talking about her feature film debut, Baby Teeth, which is out in cinemas on the 21st of August. It is a brilliant debut feature film that you should really search out. Next week on this show, we have none other than the fabulous Terence Blanchard, who amongst many things is Spike Lee's go-to composer. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. In the meantime, stay safe. <laughs>